This is a, a going to be a weird talk. It's not, not out of character. Uh, it's a merger between uh, some of the things that Jill and Rob were talking about this morning about the Drake equation and habitable worlds and an audacious uh, attempt to create an origin of life on Earth so that we can use that to figure out where life started elsewhere. So it's called the Evo Grid and Chemo Grid Genesis Engines Driving Toward a New Origin of Life. So we've already asked the question, how many are out there? How many are on the move? Um, and how can we figure out to do that? And the Drake equation, you've all seen it before. I don't have to go through it. It's, but what about for the ETs of the I Love Lucy kind that go out there? So I did these three extensions to the Drake equation. I presented this here, here at the SETI Institute at the old building a couple of years ago. So the other terms are the fraction of civilization who have visionary geeks like you all. <laughs> right? Is this a low fraction? It probably is. The, the fraction of those civilizations who will get give funding to visionary geeks. <laughs> uh, the fraction of the civilizations who are willing to fund visionary geeks for an interminably long period of interminably long period of time. Uh, the fraction of the above civilizations are willing to pay for large-scale versions of the geeks' dreams. How few civilizations is that? Um, and the fraction of the above civilizations are able to remember what it was all about and handle the end results or lack of them in a mature way, i.e. not killing off all the visionary geeks and burning the fleet. <laughs> so this is why we don't hear from anybody. <laughs> you know, we don't. So um, my, my contention is that the, uh, these visionary geek uh, eternally fundable patient civilizations uh, will have to have some basics before they decide to boldly go. And one of them is understanding abstraction, math, but understanding their own evolution. They have to be able to marry the mechanisms of evolution with the mechanism of simulation, which is kind of an odd concept. Simulation in digital worlds, for our, our purposes, is weird. But they have to apply this whole magic to figuring out how they got here in order to harness the power of evolution to evolve ships, uh, progenitors of themselves to go out there. Because they evolved on their planet. They're, they're not the perfect thing. They're a hamburger-eating or an alien green hamburger-eating species that when they go into a spacecraft for a million years, is, they're inappropriate. They need to evolve appropriate uh, agency to go out. So they have to create something I call the bio-universal machine selves or bum selves. Uh, they have to put it all together for uh, visionary ETs get your bums in simulated gear, fabricate them in atoms, and dispatch them to boldly go forth and multiply. So whatever, if they're an AI or it's their original bodies or whatever. And some small, not small, time later, parking orbit above Earth, the ETs will honk and wave, yo, down there, got anybody crazy enough to be working on this? What we just did, if so, send them up. Now they may dispatch a speaker to contact for example. Um, they find the only collection of people that were like them, and they'll tell us, don't go there. It was just too hard. We couldn't keep our funding going, and they cut us off, and we're stuck in your planet. Um, anyway, <laughs> come and work for the SETI Institute. <laughs> so um, the uh, visionary geeks will have answered the key question of the universe. Are there any other bums like us out there? 
So back to SETI, which is finding a needle in a haystack. We enter the Evo grid, which is kind of like SETI, but turned on its head. Why? Because SETI, uh, Evo grid project, is to create the haystack, an origin of life simulation, and then hope that a needle spontaneously appears in it. <laughs> so it's kind of a contact exercise, too. So let's look at a, and I hope that the, uh, the sound is up, uh, it may or may not be, uh, for this wonderful movie we made in 2008 to explain to the public what the Evo Grid was about. And it's only a cartoon. This is not running for real. The Evo Grid, a whimsical view of a hypothetical evolution machine. Here we see the Evo Grid simulation cube underlaid by processors, lots and lots of processors. And as we come in, we see there's particles in the cube. The particles are starting to interact. And then suddenly we see a doubling of the processors, and then a doubling again. And we're starting to see some interesting phenomena. So let's dive in and see if we can see something happening. And it looks like with our little observer camera, we're finding something interesting going on. A little bit of self-organization is happening here. Well, a vesicle has formed. And it's got something inside it. Let's go on a few billion generations, and uh, we have something a little more interesting going on in the vesicles. And a little bit more structure in this one. And a few billion generations later, and oh, we've got uh, a little bit of behavior going on. It's uh, more of an entity. And uh, let's, uh, we've got a really complex entity here. Let's push this along and uh, put it into our scanner. Scanner's going to take it apart digitally. It's a digitally evolved being, of course, and build its uh, little capsule of XML data. Now we're going to transmit it to our nifty nanofab. Our Acme nanofab is taking in CO2, ammonia, and good old water, H2O, and it's going to fabricate our digitally evolved entity into a creature of chemistry, making sheaths and strings and reacting parts and channels. It looks like our creature is finished, it's being printed, and out the end of the glass tube will come our fabbed entity, ready for a swan dive into a beaker. And in the beaker is the formulated chemical soup designed to be like the original Sim Cube. And let's see if our creature's recognizing the, the chemicals and it's uh, running the algorithms and it's swimming off. So it seems to be off to a good start in a new life in the world of the molecule. So this was our cartoon vision. Everybody needs a Donald Duck. Uh, Roadrunner vision of uh, their science project. But uh, so that's the Evil Grid project. So I, one of the fellows has been very helpful along the way on this thing is Freeman Dyson. And I was just there a month ago getting some more advice from him. I'm not sure he remembers who I am, even though I've seen him multiple times. <laughs> but that's Freeman. But he said, uh, the simulation is, truly should be messy. Nature is not as clean as you are depicting in the movie. Cells are more like dirty water surrounded by garbage bags, which is in his book, Origins of Life. This is about two, three years ago when, when I met him about this. So building life the hard way, how, how do you really do this? Well, there's 
all these models, uh, chemical models, there's uh, hydrothermal models, there's wet drying cycles, vesicle formation, polymerization, you name it. There's all these models of how life could have started. You know, and Miller and Urey in 1953 simulated uh, chemically uh, the formation of amino acids in a presumed early Earth-like atmosphere. And it was a sensation in 1953. Uh, so this kind of started the modern era of the, the chemogrid, I would call it. I, uh, one of the partners in this effort and in the book project is the uh, Fundamental Living Technologies Lab at the University of Southern Denmark. And this is Steen Rasmussen with his harebrained scheme about how to create life in the lab. And it's uh, too detailed to go into, but this is some of their sketch work, and this is their ordinal light computing equipment. Here, mostly uh, chemistry, mostly glassware. So how easy is this going to be to do this thing? Well, it's actually really hard. I wouldn't worry about gray goo anytime soon. Uh, Penny Boston in contact about four years ago, I, I pulled her aside and she said, look, you know, you, you must not attempt a high-fidelity chemistry model in your computer simulation of the origin of life, which is what the EvoGrid is about. All that counts is if you can demonstrate a method for ever-increasing levels of emergent complexity. And I heard this over, and this is from a cave person, right? Um, so everyone's got the meme. I've heard this over and over again from artificial life people, original life people, complexity theory people. But then Boston goes on to say, you need this, this computer, to originate and evolve complex life and civilization. It's a big computer running for a long time. Uh, so... What is a minimal cell? How do you get from just a collection of organic molecules to a minimal cell? Well, models for minimal cells have, there's still big complex machine. There's a vacuum cleaner over there and an energy generator over there and a, a data store over there, and there's just so much. So how can you possibly get there? How do you get from, you know, bouncing around organic molecules, fairly small ones, to the machine this is the sim one of the simplest or organisms, a prokaryotic cell structure. This thing is a huge, it's like a Queen Mary of complexity. How do you get there? Well, uh, this is Pierre-Alain Monard's model of ratcheting. You do it through the magic of the ratchet. You form a microenvironment, which then is a layer of complexity that you can form vesicles, and you can form more complex things on top. Once you have vesicles, you can get things on top of that, and on top of that, and on top of that. And every step has to work. Uh, so it's it's really tough. So how do you map this computer? And I know you're laughing at the Commodore pad, but we're not that far. Don't don't forget there was a Commodore pad in Alien Return of the Machines. I, I you must note that uh, it was behind everything. Don't don't diss uh, vintage computers, please. Um, uh, the Evo Grid, so step in the Evo Grid. So taking on Penny Boston's challenge and Freeman Dyson's challenge, I decided to go back to school. After 25, I came up with this, this idea in 1981. This is a long-term PhD. Started on in 1985 at the University of Southern California. I had a fax uh, 11750 computer on the ARPANET and had a Tektronix color, big graphical display about four feet long. I thought, I can do this. I can simulate emergent phenomena with millions of objects. I was too soon. There was no field. There was nothing going on. I think I found a book by a guy named Johnny von Neumann from sometime in the 50s, and that was about it. So I waited, and I restarted the PhD on, in 2007-2008. And there was just barely enough to do what you're going to see next. So what we decided to do was... Uh, 
create uh, zillions of computers going into one common molecular soup that we, we model with Romax, which is a, a tool used in the protein folding at home project, and, and analyze these soups and see if we can get the soups to get richer. That's, a, that's the basic, simple to richer. No life is going to be emerging in there. And I went back to the Institute for Advanced Study and pulled out von Neumann and Oppenheimer's files, rifled through all the punch cards for that machine. That's the original ECP machine at the Institute, which is kind of the first real modern computer. And I found this guy, Baricelli, who'd made an A-Life program on, to run on this machine in 1953. And I read his report, and it was the same design questions as I had. <laughs> so it's like the von Neumann architecture, you know, it doesn't let go, you know, <laughs> it really doesn't. So we decided, the team that, that, that built this, we were going to do hill climbing. And hill climbing is what nature does. It's what you do when you try to get ahead at your job. You're trying to seek little advantages. Those are called maximon. Birds' beak sizes change so they can eat seeds, etc. And you try to do hill climbing. So we set up uh, computers and we burned through the zillions of, of hours of computation. We were looking for richer molecules. We, uh, this is what the experiments looked like. So a, a volunteer in Norway built this uh, WebGL interface into the simulation cubes. And this is one of hundreds of thousands of, of individual molecular cubes that were, were bonds were gradually forming and it was getting gradually richer. And if a, if a cube was super rich, we took that and seeded the next 20, you know, 2,000 cubes worth of simulation from that seed. So it was emerging. We weren't pushing it. We weren't programming it like a lot of things happen in computing. We were just letting a vector go. So it, it's all, I mean, this is not really good to show people charts after lunch, uh, but um, <laughs> this was the chart that saved my bacon in the PhD. So the PhD was due on May the 8th of last year. And we'd done six experiments, and they'd all failed, pretty much. <laughs> and so we had to show that we had a technique to show uh, at least two orders of magnitude of ratcheting complexity. And I called my friend at UC San Diego, and he, he put 30 cores together on a rack, and we ran them at 100%. And we changed. We had only the experiment would take two months to run. So I said, I got to get the PhD in on May 8th. We're starting. I have to pick the last parameters for the hill climbing algorithm. And I picked it, and this is what it looked like on April 15th. So we busted through the theoretical maximum uh, on the pink, and we went slamming through level after level after level, as, and we ended up with uh, over almost 200 molecules formed in a thousand atom simulation, which was actually pretty darn good. So we went through this bumpy landscape all the way up. So, you know, PhD got done. <laughs> uh, so this is stochastic hill climbing, but I want to tell you... Um, that computers are decades, maybe even a century or more away from simulating chemistry at the molecular atomic level in order to do real origin of life work, like to simulate enough. They're a century away, if ever, if ever. So I was very depressed sitting on a park bench in Montpellier, France at an origin of life conference. And I said, you know what, the whole thing's a bust. Next week I defend my thesis, but there's nowhere to go from here. And I had this vision that popped up of the of, of inflated party balloons. Inflated party balloons where you could squirt a little volume of chemicals, have them run themselves, simulate themselves, sample them out, replace the samples, and repeat. You know, wash, rinse, repeat over and over and over again. 
and the, then the chemo grid was born. So here's four little conceptual shells, uh, one that's heated up, one that's rocked back and forth. Uh, it's got some light on it. So, but you can throw these balloons away and you can make new ones. It's not glassware. Now you could do this with microfluidics as well. So then you put the computer down below and you watch what comes out of these balloons. If, if a balloon's making lots of little vesicles, it's a cool experiment. You then start up 50 more. You inflate them, insert the stuff, and start them up. So the, the chemo grid was born. Here's a logical sort of thing, uh, view of the same experience. You might have catalysis emerging in one little group and vesicles forming and RNA forming another one, have them all feed into a great big reactor, and that's this chemical reactor, and then separate them out and look, and then cycle it again. So use molecules to actually run themselves. So I actually, with a friend, we, we, we went to tap plastics and got cheap parts and old glassware, and we built a shelf in the summer of 2001, which we could do all these things, you know, with this one, one beaker, you know, a one piece of Pyrex and a pool pump, you know, this is a, it's a fish tank pump. So, you know, and we went and presented to Dave Deemer at UC Santa Cruz, who really is an origin of light chemist, and he was actually impressed enough and he patted me on the head, being nice try, and then she took me down the left and showed his machine. <laughs> so this is his machine. This is a real, and this is done with NASA astrobiology, and it's, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing, and it's a plate that rotates around, and it is a chemo grid. It is a machine, an origin of life machine or a piece of one, rotates around, they squirt a little bit of something into the little wells, they dry them out, it forms little layers of egg white kind of lipid layers, and in between those layers are, are polymers form, and then they put more water in and they reinfuse and they get longer and longer and longer polymers. And this is what could have happened at the seashore, you know, four billion years ago. So they're building this. So what happened was I said, wow. <laughs> I found this down this in uh, in Safeway, or maybe <laughs> it's the right uh, the right primordial soup. So the power the power of soups. So as a result of all this, um, about that time I was not as depressed, and I got the PhD. So here it is. So that's 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 done. Uh, and at the same, literally. The week before defending the thesis while I was on the park bench, I got an email from a fellow who edits a series in a Springer series in it's called Cellular Origin of Life and Extreme Habitats in Astrobiology. And I said, I've just completed this thesis, blah blah blah. He said, Would you like to turn it into a book? So I have a contract to turn this into a book involving uh, Dave Deemer and, and probably 15, 20 other writers to actually try to create a field in origin of life called, Gen I'm calling the book for popular consumption, Genesis Engines. Common robots uh, doing the chemistry to get us toward an actual origin of life in this century. You know, this is a Kennedy-esque uh, prediction. In this century. So, but back to E.T., back to the Chef, chef Strostek area. So what, what about these evil grids? If you brew up aliens in the evil grid, what if a chemo grid or a Genesis engine generated something that was lifelike, that uh, people ran screaming out of the laboratory. And, um, <laughs> is it a new kind of SETI telescope? If you can actually simulate with your chemistry, you could simulate the Martian ice cap in such a system and figure out the likelihood of there being microbes in the Martian ice cap. 
Uh, and what about alternative universes? If your computers got powerful enough, you could simulate alternative physics and figure out where life could arise in alternative universes with different physicses. Um, what physics uh, uh, oh, and this is this was Seth's idea four years ago at Contact. If you built an evil grid that could communicate in millions of channels in parallel and, and just show itself completely exposed, could you use that? If ET arrived, you wouldn't send them like a, a menu from McDonald's, but if you expose them to this complex matrix of something evolving, it would be a language they might understand. So it might be a way to actually communicate with E.T. You'd send them math, too, but they might say, I hated math in school. <laughs> they might nuke you if they thought you were going to teach them math. Um, so if we... Now, here's a really far-out one. This is more of the sci sci science fiction. If, if somebody made an, a garden-variety quantum computer you bought at Fry's or Dell or Apple or whatever, and somebody... Uh, it was a quantum computer, but it had really thin walls and you put your evil grid simulation in it, what if they got out? And they could organize at the quantum level. So the whole universe turns on. This is like a great bear kind of thing. Uh, so I wrote this, and this is my last uh, piece, and I'll, I'll read it, and you can take a, a short nap. Uh, uh, Ode to a Genesis Engine. Oh, Genesis Engine, you great Rube Goldberg machine of the 21st century. Resplendent with all your pumps piping chemical soups around, your computer eyes scanning for signs of competing lines of polymer-infused vesicles, and your purring grids of silicon modeling yields and then selecting experiments to be robotically reseeded. Now that's a run-on sense if I ever read one. Um, and inside you one day, perhaps decades hence, an alarm will sound in one lone experiment within your millions of distributed chemogrids. A sample will be rushed to analysis, and scientists will emerge breathlessly, declaring that a second genesis has occurred, or rather, is in the course of occurring if time and budgets permitted running you for another thousand years. You will leave us all wondering what it all means, but it will mark a major moment for our species, as powerful as, as when our Earth was first photographed from space. For thanks to you, we will know that we are almost certainly not alone in the universe, and in some sense, we will have made contact. So acknowledge, thank you, uh, the various funding sources and academic sources, and you can reach me at bruce at dammer.com, and here is a, a closing thought. <laughs> And uh, we have probably four or five minutes for questions. We're gradually getting back on schedule here. Yes. Good time. Questions. A philosophical question. So if you make one of these simulated computer organisms and then you clone it into the real world with chemicals, are they both equally alive? Yes, and in fact, uh, the, the, the question of are they equally alive... Why is it that we will not preserve a, a, a breed of rare pigs, but will fight to preserve a natural species in the wild and get it whole, you know, links, uh, you know, from extinction or uh, dangerous species? So, what will be the status? And one of the writers of the Genesis and his book is a philosopher, and he's tasked with writing the history of these arguments and, you know, are they subject? Because 
truthfully, what you'll see in the first, I, I believe, you'll see something that is very powerfully suggestive that if you kept running, it will become a living system, but in no way has the machinery to read. You could flush it down the toilet. Would, even before the flushing started, it would be breaking up. It would be like goo. It would, no power to it. No, no ability to uh, sustain itself, except in these very, very certain circumstances, because the machinery doesn't have time to assemble it. So it's it's on the way to life, but it's not life. But it's on a trajectory to life. So maybe that'll, people won't be so scared of it. Uh, another question? You know, I guess you could uh, you could work uh, work from the opposite end, uh, the way uh, Craig Venter is trying to do with his uh, minimal or maximally simple organism and uh, start with whatever he creates, you know, presumably... I mean, he kind of did that that announcement that he made last year. Uh, take a maximally simple organism, and then just look at what parts it has, and see what are the parts that parts that really need to be created and conceptualized about where the bottlenecks are in that process. He probably done something like that. The, yeah, the arguments there. This, there's several arguments against that. One. Is what he's taking, it's like he's taking the Queen Mary, the hull, and all the wiring, everything is still in there. He's putting a new steering cabin in it. Because what he's taking is already so massive in terms of the, the lipid membrane itself is you know, trillions and trillions of, of individual atoms, and it's huge. So the, our, the software engineering argument is it's a hacking, it's a hack job. And, and you can't really see the real quintessence of how the, the, the self-organization started and how it ratcheted. You're never going to see it when you start with a great big hunk of code like that. You're not going to have to start with the floating piece of, of log on the, on the lake and see how that turns into a boat. And then the, if you look at the Queen Mary, you're going to never know how that Queen Mary came about. So that, that's just one, one argument against doing. But then, of course, he wants to get results in his lifetime. There's most origin of life. People have given up hope on, on that. Are we? Are we uh, one more. One more question. Uh, quick question, followed by an observation. Do you live elsewhere, or do, in a sensible country, or do you live in America? Oh. <laughs> Uh, oh, sensible country. I've just come back from Pakistan, which seemed pretty sensible to me. Uh, that's another talk. Uh, uh, I live in Santa Cruz, and, and I, I, there's your answer, Raven. I, 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 I was at a Pentagon seminar, and just before the Iraq War, and almost got a fist fight with the guy from the Army War College, and. He said, what planet do you live on? And I said, planet Santa Cruz. <laughs> uh, my concern is the name of the project. 40% uh, of this country are born-again Christians. Of those, 20% are virulent born-again Christians, many of whom will think what they're doing is not only blasphemy, but worthy of an evil person who should be terminated. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting is in a previous book project, we had... Uh, born-again Christians writing, Muslim fundamentalists, Jewish rabbis who were fairly fundamentalist, creationist rabbis, and then we had a group of us writing, and we had dialogues back and forth. And one of the guys, and it was the uh, Muslim fundamentalist, said he was really interested in the project. And I said, well, are you, are you not a believer or a believer, etc.? He said, well, not really. I'm just intellectually interesting, interested. So I told him, if you want to join the project, 
officially, you will have you will be the cell membrane to your community. You will have to talk to them in their language to explain what this is about. And he agreed to do it. So it's like you build in your immune system by inviting these people in. That are actually, they're closet closet science types, right? Really. So anyway, it's a strategy. It may or may not work. Thank you, Bruce. As always, great.